Complacency is, is not the greatest characteristic in anyone, but especially in a leader. If you think about uh, the, the current president of the United States and the fact that he made a lot of promises before he took office, and if he had become complacent once he got into the Oval Office and not fulfilled any of those promises, we wouldn't be very happy with the president in the Oval Office at this point, would we? Thankfully, the, the president in the Oval Office, though he's got some areas of character that could improve, uh, has fulfilled a lot of those promises. And so he hasn't been a complacent leader. He's been an active leader. And as we look at King David, David had taken the throne and he had finally united all Israel under his authority. It wasn't just Judah anymore. There was no civil war. There was no conflict. There was no uh, in, internal fighting. There was no question as to who was the king. It was David. And now that David's on the throne, we get to, to watch David to say, okay, David, what kind of leader are you going to be? Are you going to be a complacent leader or are you going to be an active leader? Are you going to be a dynamic leader? Are you going to be a godly leader who goes out and does what the Lord has commanded you to do? As we get into 2 Samuel chapter 8, there's a, a bit of a, a, a chronology issue that we have here. If you'll turn back one chapter to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 1. We read, now when the king lived in his house, in his palace, and the Lord had given him, what's the next word there? Rest. Rest from all his surrounding enemies. Okay, that's 2 Samuel 7, verse 1, and then we get into the Davidic covenant, which we covered last time together. And now we get to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and 2 Samuel chapter 8 is anything but a chapter of rest from surrounding enemies. In fact, 2 Samuel chapter 8 is all about the surrounding enemies and all about the conflict and all about the battles that David had to fight against these surrounding enemies. And so when we look at this, it seems to say, well, there has to be something else going on. This, this doesn't line up because in chapter 7, there's rest. In chapter 8, there's unrest. Did things turn that quickly? Well, no, things didn't turn that quickly. What we find here is we find that chapter 8 is really an unpacking of chapter 7 verse 1. Chapter 8 is really kind of the the 30,000 foot view, the exposition, if you will, of that phrase, God gave David rest from all of his surrounding enemies. What did that look like? How did God do that? It wasn't a mystical wave of the wand. It wasn't a, a divine snapping of the fingers. It was using David and using his leadership to go out and to fight the battles against the enemies that were surrounding Israel. And so chapter 8, and even part of chapter 10 in, in the conflict between Ammon and Syria and Israel, which we'll get to a little bit later even this morning, there's, those things happened before the events of chapter 7. Well, why would chapter 7 come before those events? I think, very simply put, it's because the Davidic covenant is, is monumental in the, the scope of David's life. And so once he took the throne, I think the writer was saying, okay, now that David was on the throne, let's lay out the conditions of the Davidic covenant because this is going to help set the framework for everything else that we understand moving forward. Then after that, chapter 8 gives us that that 30,000 foot view of how God gave him rest from all of his enemies so that he could make that promise that he made to David. As we talk about the surrounding enemies, you can see up here on the map uh, some of, of what we're talking about. This is from this time in particular. You've got Jerusalem and David down here in the bottom portion of the map. You've got the Philistines to the left. You've got the Moabites across the Dead Sea over here. You've got uh, the Ammonites there. Up here, you've got uh, Aram and Damascus, the Syrians. You've got Zobah up here. And then way up here is, is a guy named King Toy. We'll talk about him. And, and Hamath is another area. So those are all nations, godless nations, godless in the sense of the, the God of Israel, who, uh, who were enemies of the God of Israel. Uh, some of them more hostily so than, than others, but they were all 
nations that needed to be driven out from before the Israelites. And so as David assumes the throne, again, the question is, okay, David, what kind of leader are you going to be? Are you going to be a complacent leader who just kicks his feet up in, in Jerusalem and doesn't really worry about these surrounding nations? Or are you going to be a leader who's faithful to the God that put you in that throne, the God that established that throne for you? And are you going to go out and do the work that needs to get done? And so in chapter 8, verse 1, it opens up with that first group, the Philistines. The Philistines, they're the ones on the map to the, the left, if you're looking from the, the point of view that we are looking. They're left of Jerusalem there to the west. And, and the Philistines are, are people we've already encountered, aren't they? David took the throne and the Philistines drew up for battle right away to strike while the iron was hot, to try to cut the legs out from under this new king and his administration. And yet David went out and defeated them not once, but twice. And so we see more of a, a summary of that here in verse one. It says, after this, David defeated the, the Philistines and subdued them. That word subdued means he, he humiliated them. He wrecked them. He undid them. It's interesting from this time forward, the Philistines really don't pose a threat to Israel in, in the rest of the Old Testament. This is pretty much the, the end of their, uh, of any legitimate uh, opposition that the Philistines are going to pose moving forward. And they had been a thorn in the side of Saul, for sure. They had been a thorn in the side of David for a little while until David defeated and subdued them. And then it says this interesting phrase, he took Methig Amah out of the hand of the Philistines. And so you can look at that map. You can look at any map that you want to. You're not going to find a, a, an area or a territory called Methig Amah anywhere. But what Methig Amah means in the Hebrew is it means mother city. So Amah is mother and, and Methig is, is city or town, administration. And so what the, the author here was trying to communicate is David went in and conquered the Philistines, defeated the Philistines, subdued the Philistines, and took their mother cities. Came in and took their Washington, D.C., so to speak. That was Gath. And so when, when Israel went in and conquered the Philistines, drove them out and took possession of Gath, I mean, that was the crippling death blow to the, the Philistines as far as their power and authority in the land. But then from the Philistines, in verse 2, David turns and, and goes across the, the Dead Sea there to, to Moab. And he attacks the Moabites. And it says, he defeated Moab. He measured them out with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. This one is admittedly a little bit more difficult for us because we don't have all the background of the conflict between Moab and King David, between Moab and Jerusalem. In fact, what we have is, is quite the opposite. Because if, if we know David and we know his lineage, one of David's ancestors, not distant ancestors, one of David's grandparents was who? Ruth. And Ruth was a Moabitess, right? But even more recently than that, in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verses 3 and 4, David, as he's fleeing for his life from Saul, takes his mom and dad, takes Jesse and Mrs. Jesse, and he says, you know what, you're not safe from Saul, so why don't you come with me? David goes into Moabite territory and asks the Moabites to protect his family from Saul, to which they agree, and they do so. And so while we don't know what changed, something clearly changed between David and his relationship with the Moabites, or more probably between Israel in general and, and her relationship with the Moabites that led David to go so hostily after the people of Moab. He doesn't do what he does to the Moabites with any of the other people groups that are listed here in this chapter. He kills two-thirds of the army that he had already conquered, that he had already captured. He takes the prisoners and he lays them down in three rows and wipes out two rows and spares one. This is pretty hostile. 
what David's doing here. Again, we don't have the, the full background. We can't understand entirely what happened, but knowing David's character, knowing David's passion and zeal from the Lord, I think it's fair to say that, that the Moabites had done something pretty atrocious to, to draw this response from King David. Most likely done something to Israel or done something to bring shame or dishonor upon the God of Israel that led David and the Israelites to go out and exact such severe recompense. Well, right away we see that, that David is not going to be a man of complacency that he is God's vice regent, that he is God's prince over Israel, that he is leading, ruling on behalf of God, and he is going to do God's bidding and God's beckoning. It's easy for us to find complacency, especially during times of comfort. And so as we come to our text this morning, our first point is that you and I need to make sure that we battle the complacency of comfort. I'm sure that David was more comfortable on the throne of David in Jerusalem in his palace than he was in the cave running for his life from Saul, no? His, his circumstances had changed dramatically. And anytime that happens to us, anytime that, that we either achieve something that we've been working really hard for or God brings us out of a period of suffering and we, we feel at ease, we feel relief, this temptation to fall into a state of complacency is gonna be very real for us. We're going to say, you know what, I'm good. I don't need to try as hard. I don't need to pray as hard. I don't need to read my Bible as much. We're not going to feel that, that drive that we do when we're walking through the shadow of death, so to speak. But it's urgent that we do. It's urgent that we never live up, uh, let up or, or slow up in our pursuit of Christ, in our drive to, to be obedient to the Lord, to be actively obedient to the Lord. Why is that? It's because we've got this enemy that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, 11 through 13. Paul says, put on then the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle. Our battle, our conflict is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. On your best day, our enemy is still working against your sanctification. And we need to remember that. Anytime that we're tempted to fall into that, that state of complacency, to think, you know what, I'm, I'm doing okay for myself. That's the first sign of danger. Is we need to be always ready to say, you know what, there, there's a battle today that I need to fight. There's a battle against the, the cosmic powers that work in this present age. I, I don't think I'm anywhere on, on Satan himself's radar. I think there's bigger fish for him to fry. But he's got plenty of demons at his disposal that, that are, are out to, to oppose my growth in, in Christ's likeness. And to think otherwise is, is simply foolish. And so we need to always be ready to keep going, to keep pressing on. So what does that look like? How can we practically battle the complacency of comfort? Number one, begin every day reminding yourself of what the Lord expects of you. Every day, the Lord has expectations on us. There's not a day off that we can take from what the Lord wants us to do and how he wants us to conduct ourselves. Colossians 3.17 Paul instructs us there that whatever we do, we are to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink, do everything you do. Do all that you do for the glory of God. 
need to remind ourselves daily of what the Lord expects of us. Second, we need to own the totality of God's mission for our lives. There's not a day off from the Great Commission. There's not half time from the Great Commission. It's always our mission to fulfill the Great Commission. So daily, we can't get to the place where we think, you know what, I'm coming out of a rough patch in life. I'm done. I don't have any responsibilities for a while. No, you're always going to have the responsibility to be a witness for Christ. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. That was a a commission, yes, for the the immediate hearers of of that commission, but it's also a commission that's trickled down through the ages to us. That that work is not done. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we know that the ends of the earth have not yet been fully reached with the gospel. And for some of you in this room this morning, the ends of the earth for you is your next door neighbor that needs to hear the gospel. And so we need to own the totality of God's mission for our life. We, we can't grow complacent in the Great Commission. There's, there's always going to be more work to be done, another soul to be saved, until that last soul is saved and the Lord comes back for his church. Third, battle complacency by setting measurable goals for your days and your weeks. Setting measurable goals for your days and your weeks. Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s as a a very young man, sat down and he wrote 70 resolutions. And these are are examples of what I'm talking about by setting goals for our days in our weeks. You can find these if you search on Google for the the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, You can find PDFs. You can find them broken down by category. It's a, a great thing to go through. But here's just a few of his. Resolved never to do anything I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. It's a pretty relevant one for us right now. Certainly applicable, measurable. It's a good thing for us and we should, from time to time throughout our day, take time out to say, okay, what am I doing right now? What are the thoughts that are going through my mind? If Christ came back or if I died right now, am I doing something that I would be embarrassed about, that I would be ashamed of? Another one, resolve to inquire every night as I'm going to bed where I have been negligent, what sin I have committed, where I have denied myself. Also, at the end of every week, month, and year. He's got another one that says not only that, to think about those things, but to ask himself where he could have done better that day. It's a great habit to get into. Look back at your day, look back at your week, look back at your month. Okay, God, how did this go spiritually? Where could I have done better? What? What were my, my low points, my weak points? I like this one. Resolve never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. It's a good one to post in our car, right? Never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. Or this one. Never to speak evil of anyone except I have some particular good call for it. But resolve never to speak evil of, everyone, of anyone. That, that's a, a great one. Resolved after suffering to ask, how am I better for it? What good have I received from this? Or this one, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and hell. There's more, like I said, there's, there's 70 of them. These would be a great resource for you as you're thinking about, okay, so what does it look like to set measurable goals every day, every week, uh, so I can battle complacency in, in my spiritual walk in my life? 
Comfort is a, a breeding ground for complacency, and we just need to be aware of that and on guard against that. So David takes out the Philistines, and then he goes after the, the Moabites, and then this next one up is, is Zobah, the king of Zobah. And if you're anything like me, you saw that and you said, I didn't even know that there was a territory called Zobah. Where is Zobah? Who was the king of Zobah? Here's our map again. Zobah, again, is, is up here. It's an area that's within the, the Syrian territory. So the king of Zobah was a branch of the, the Syrian army, the Syrian uh, people. And so what we find in the text, it says in verse 3, David defeated, I'm just going to call him King Hadad, the, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. So what's going on? This king Zobah goes up to the river Euphrates, which that in and of itself is a problem for David. Because God promised Israel back in the book of Exodus that they were going to have the promised land from the, the Dead Sea all the way up to what? To the river Euphrates. So the, the Syrians are kind of flexing their muscles on the border here. It'd be like if, you know, Canada and their Mounties drew up on the northern border of Michigan there and started neighing at us or something. It's, if nothing else, you're going to scratch your head and say, What's going on with Canada? But there's more to it than that. And this is where we need to, to do a little bit of, of Olympics with the chronology here. And, and it's, it's not unfounded. It's, it's what actually took place. But we need to, to look actually to chapter 10 to get the full orb of what's going on here in chapter 8. Chapter 10, verse 6. Now, we'll get in more in depth to chapter 10. So I'm not going to get too in depth here. But Chapter 10, verse 6, when the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench to David, okay? So Ammon, in our map here, is right above Moab. So if you look down there, you've got Jerusalem down to the, the southeast, you've got Moab. North of Moab, you've got Ammon, okay? So when the Ammonites figured out that they had become a stench to King David, the, the King David that had wiped out the Philistines and their neighbors, the Moabites, they're not feeling too good about things. They sent and hired the Syrians. They hired the Syrians of Beth Rehob and the Syrians of Zobah. 20,000 foot soldiers, King Makah with 1,000 men, and so forth and so on. And then it turns out that the battle doesn't go well for the Ammonites and the Syrians. Verse 13, so Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. They tucked tail and ran. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. So this king of Zobah, in between David's defeat of the Moabites and David's encounter now with him up at the river Euphrates, there had been this other battle with the Ammonites. Why isn't that mentioned in chapter 8? I'm not sure why it's not mentioned in chapter 8. It is mentioned for us in chapter 10. And, and we can tell from the chronology what's going on. And, and so there was this battle with the Ammonites. The Ammonites called the Syrians. The Syrians came down to help. The Syrians saw Joab and Israel line up for battle, and the Syrians ran for their lives. So as they're coming back to King the, the king of Zobah up here, King Hadad, you can imagine he's not feeling too great about the fact that his army tucked their tails and, and ran for their lives, is he? And so that helps us understand in chapter 8, verse 3, why he would have drawn up to the river Euphrates to restore his power. See, the, the king's trying to save face at this point. The king's trying to, to, to flex his military might a little bit. And notice he's not launching an invading party all the way down to where David is. He's hanging out at the, the northern border of David's territory. Well, David's, of course, not going to stand for that. And so what we find in verse 3 is, just put very plainly, David also defeated. There it is. Da David also defeated Mo uh, 
Hadadezer, King Hadad, the, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. Why did he do that? Because Israel is not an area for chariots. It, the, the terrain does not lend itself to chariots. They, they were great in areas of open plain where you could draw up for battle on a big open wide space. But in the mountainous and hill, hilly terrain of Israel, they, they wouldn't have done David any good. That, and I think also David at this point is still mindful of the command that, that kings should not amass horses for themselves. So basically he renders those horses uh, helpless and, 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 and useless to anybody who would want to use them. So you've got this King Zoba. He drives up, he's, he's ready to go. And he had already been there. He had gone down to, to, to Ammon. And then you've, if, if we think back with the Philistines, how they drew up for battle and David went out and beat them and then they drew up again. David had to be thinking to himself from time to time, okay, when are you going to get the picture? You know, Philistines, I, I beat you guys once on the very ground that you're drawn up for battle again. Okay, fine, we'll, we'll beat you again. And then with King Zobah, didn't you come down with, with the Ammonites? Didn't we already run you off? And, and now what are you doing? You're, you're, you're flexing your muscles again. What, what are you, what, when are you going to get the picture? But that's just it. Sometimes we have enemies in our lives that, that won't stay down, that keep getting up off the mat. David had those with the Philistines and with the Syrians. We have that enemy as well. It's not a, a particular people group, but you and I have that enemy as well that we need to be on guard against. That's our second point this morning. We need to beware the persistence of the enemy. I don't want to over-spiritualize our text here. In fact, I went to two other pastors and I asked them on this point, hey, do you feel like I'm over-spiritualizing? And one of them said, you know what? You'd be in good company with Charles Spurgeon, which is normally a great compliment, except that Spurgeon himself was guilty of over-spiritualizing the text a lot of times. But it is what it is. I think that the principle is certainly here. I will admit, I, David wasn't intending for me to stand up and, and preach this point, so let me just tell you that. That's hopefully not a shock to you. But, but we have an enemy, don't we? 1 John 2, 15, who is our enemy? The world, the flesh, and Satan. And if there has ever been an enemy that gets back up off the mat, it's those, isn't it? Those enemies are, are always ready. If we turn our back, if we feel like we've got a particular sin vanquished in our life, and we let our guard down, that enemy, that sin, will be back up off the mat and ready to come after us again. So we need to beware the persistence of our enemy. How do we do that? Number one, know your enemy. What are those sins in your life that get back up off the mat the most frequently? It's going to be different from the sins of somebody else in this room. Know what those are. Second, keep up the pursuit of mortification. Mortification is a, a strange old word that means to put to death. And so as you think of the instructions of Paul, that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what we're talking about here. Is as you consider those sins that do get back up off the mat, keep up the pursuit of the mortification of those sins. One day, one week, one month of victory doesn't mean that you're done fighting. Doesn't mean that you can let down your guard. We need to stay ready, to stay aware. Third, keep friends close who will serve as sentries on the wall, so to speak, of your life. This is accountability. Keep, keep brothers close that are going to be able to come alongside you and say, hey, I, I see this rearing up in your life and I'm concerned about this. I see this threat to your walk with Christ. 
the enemy seems to be influencing in this area, and, and I just want you to be conscious of this. Friends who will call you to repentance, friends who will call you to, uh, to restoration. Finally, keep a close eye on the spiritual walls of your life. Keep a close eye on the spiritual walls of your life. Some things that can erode those walls are entertainment. What you take in, what you watch, what you listen to, what you surf on the internet. Those things can erode the walls. Social media can erode the walls. News sites can erode the walls. Let me just encourage you, gentlemen, if, if your news site causes anger in you and, and stirs up a, an anger like Matthew chapter 5 in your heart towards other people, ditch the news site. Honestly. Jump on Twitter and just get your news through 140 characters or less because it's going to do better for your heart and your your feeling towards people. It's not worth sinning against somebody just to, to let somebody know that you disagree with a, a particular platform. I have to hear that. I was listening to the briefing on the way in this morning and they were talking about some of the comments made by the, the new president of, of Planned Parenthood. It didn't do good things in my heart. And there, yes, there's a righteous anger that we can have. But we, that's a, a very careful area that we need to make sure that we're guarding because righteous anger can quickly become unrighteous anger if, if we're not careful there. So uh, watch what you take in. Also watch your thought life. What are those things that you let run rampant through the halls of your mind? Paul gives us in Philippians 4.8 very specifically what we should be dwelling on. What, what are the types of things we should be thinking about? Another thing that can erode our spiritual walls is our relationships, the company that we keep. Who are your closest friends? Are they people that in, encourage your walk with Christ, that spur you on, that challenge you in your walk with Christ? Are they unbelievers who don't have a positive impact on you? Bad company corrupts good morals. So we need to beware the persistence of the enemy. David continues in verses five through eight, he encounters now the Syrians so the rest of the Syrians in that area, if you can go back to that, that map here, the, the rest of the Syrians, this is just the zoomed in northern part, come up the Aram Damascus area. They come up to the aid of, of the king of Zoba because again, they were all part of the, the Syrian people and, and they come up and David defeats them as well in verse five. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadad, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And then David in a, in a stroke of genius puts garrisons up there. Because if he's way down south in Jerusalem in his capital, he needs somebody up north to make sure that the people that he's just defeated aren't going to regroup and, and come back after Israel. So he installs military garrisons up there to, to keep the, the people in check. I mean, David's victories are just monumental at this point. He's having victories even over people that, that he's not even having to fight at this point. The, the king of, of Hamath up here, King Toy I mentioned earlier, this guy, before David even gets a chance to get to him, he takes his son and he's like, hey, uh, son, I, I got a job for you. And he sends his son to King David with tribute. He takes David what David would have exacted for him if David would have beaten him in the first place. And so what we can see here is, is David is, is having unrivaled, unmatched success in these military victories. But there's a reason for that, isn't there? It's there in verse six and it's also repeated in verse 14 says very plainly twice in our text, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. This is why we read in 2 Samuel 7, 1, 
the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The Lord, again, he didn't wave his, his divine magic wand. He didn't snap his fingers and all of a sudden there were no enemies around anymore. He used David's hard work, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is, is doing that very physically and literally with King David by using David and his military prowess and his strategies to, to go out and to defeat all of these people groups. But it is the Lord who is giving David victory wherever he goes. And so nobody's able to stand up against King David because nobody is able to stand up against God. But then we come to verse 13 and it says, and David made a name for himself. David made a name for himself. And there's part of us that wants to slam on the, the brakes right there, pull the emergency brake right there, because that, that sounds bad. That sounds prideful. That sounds like it, it runs against what we've just read, that the Lord gave David victory wherever he went. And now it says that David made a name for himself. But we need to, to dig into the text a little bit more. Because the way that David made a name for himself, and it connects it specifically to the Valley of Salt and the, the battle against the Edomites, where 18,000 Edomites were killed. But if we go over to the parallel account of this event in 1 Chronicles 18.12, in 1 Chronicles 18.12, we read there that it was actually Abishai, one of David's military commanders, that led the charge that struck down 18,000 Edomites. And so David gets the credit for something that Abishai did. And in fact, actually, it would have filtered from Abishai probably to Joab, who was the, the commander of all of the armies, and then finally up to David himself. And so what we find is we find a king, we find a ruler, we find a, a leader in King David who is making a name for himself on the backs of the labors and the work of his servants the people under his charge. Their actions serve to magnify the name of King David. Maybe you see where I'm going with this already, but when we look at, at Saul, Saul wanted a name for himself too, didn't he? In fact, 1 Corinthians, or not 1 Corinthians, 1 Samuel 15, the downfall of Saul with the, the battle with the Amalekites where he didn't execute everybody, he didn't kill uh, the, the king there, he didn't, put to death all the, the animals. It says there before that, before Samuel went to confront him, it says that Saul set up a monument to himself. Saul wanted to be famous. Saul wanted to make a name for himself by going out and doing the press conferences after the battles and talking about his stats, so to speak. That's not what King David was doing. That's not what we need to understand when we read King David made a name for himself. We need to understand that because God was working, because God was clearing out all these enemies, the rest of the, the people in Israel, the rest of the nation surrounding looked at David and there was a fear, there was an awe about David because of the, the representation of, of all of the rest of his people that were going out and fighting these battles and doing this work. As we consider our own lives, we need to live lives that do that for God. Such that God's name is exalted because of our actions, because of our efforts, because of the lives that we live. It's our third and final point this morning. It's we need to live for a God-exalting legacy. Live for a God-exalting legacy. This is going to run countercultural. The culture 
says that, that we need to live for a, a legacy that's going to build us up. It's interesting in, in the text, when David goes and he fights all these people, he's amassing all of this spoil from these battles. Those golden shields, and it says silver, and it says bronze, and it, all of these things that David could have taken back to his palace. I mean, David could have melted down the shields and created a bigger throne for himself, whatever. I mean, he could have used all these things to show off his majesty and his greatness and his glory. But the text says instead, in verse 11 of chapter 8, these things also David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations that he subdued. So David is taking all of the spoil, all of the victors of war, and not showing off his own strength and his own majesty and his own glory. He's dedicating them to the Lord. That word dedicate there is from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means holy or sanctified or consecrated. And so David's taking these things and he's saying, these things will be used for nothing other than glorifying God, worshiping God. That's how we need to be with our lives as well. Any of the spoil of our victories in life, we need to dedicate, consecrate, sanctify for God. To make sure that, that anything that the world would look at us and, and praise us for, that, we need to identify that and say, this needs to go back to be used to, to, to glorify God. This was Paul's mindset, right? Philippians chapter 3, 4 through 8. Though I myself, he says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Those 613 Old Testament commands. Paul's saying nailed it. Verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I imagine David would have echoed those same sentiments. Perhaps his resume would have said, a slayer of Goliath, a leader of mighty men, a destroyer of the Malachites, conqueror of the Philistines, marauder of the Moabites. But I consider it all to be loss in exchange of the surpassing value of obeying and pleasing and honoring and glorifying my God. Because that's what he's doing in this text. He's, he's shifting the paradigm. The earthly paradigm was for a king to amass glory for himself. And David's saying, no, if I'm making a name for myself, it's only so that I can take that and, and redirect it and reflect it back at God. That's what Pastor Elliot was preaching on the, a couple of weeks ago, that idea that we're all walking billboards for God, to glorify God, we're to image God. It needs to be our, our mindset. Some practical ways to, to do this. Number one, remember that you are a steward of the gift of life. Your life has been given to you entrusted to you by God. A lot of times we think of being a steward of resources, but we are also a steward of the life that we live. We're living it not for ourselves. We're living it on behalf of the, the person who has given it to us. 
second, remember, because of that, it's to be used in service to the Lord. Again, we are his image bearers. We are the walking billboards. That life that we've been entrusted with, that God has invested in us, is to be used in service to him. Third, we need to remember how easy it is for us to lose sight of that. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this crazy dream, right, with the tree stump. And he calls in Daniel finally, and Daniel gives him the interpretation and and warns him of what was going to happen. But it's not 12 months later. A year later, Nebuchadnezzar is out on his porch, the royal roof of the palace of Babylon. And it says in verse 30, the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? We know that after that he was humiliated, driven out into the wilderness uh, until he was restored, until a period of times had passed over. And I'm not saying that, that we're standing up on top of our roofs, shouting to the neighborhood in our bathrobe, is this not my mighty kingdom that I have built? I hope you're not. If you are, um, we'll talk. Um, but, but the temptation for us to do that is just the same, mentally, in our minds, to, to lose sight of the fact that we are stewards of the life that God has given us, that that life should be used in service to God. We can lose sight of that and all of a sudden become uh, proud of ourselves. We can become uh, one of those people that, that walks around with a humble brag, patting ourselves on the back for, for how great we are. And we just need to remember that that leads us to a, a dangerous position where we're living for a self-glorifying legacy, not a God-glorifying legacy. Finally, the, the practical way to do that is to remember that your legacy is not about you, but about the God that you serve. Your legacy is not about you, but about the God that you serve. You know, when people are talking about you after you're gone, you're not going to care. You're going to be in the presence of God. Your focus is not going to be bending the ear down to, to earth to find out, what are they saying about me? But so often we live our lives consumed with that. But if we live our lives for a God-exalting legacy, you're not going to have to worry about what they're saying about you down there. We can, we can put that fear to rest. But our legacy is for those that we leave behind, right? And what greater goal should we have than to leave behind a legacy that when people think about us, they think about our Savior, they think about our God. They don't think about Man, he was a super successful businessman. If you are, fantastic. But that shouldn't be what you're known for. You should be known for your relationship with Christ, your walk with the Lord. I don't know if y'all were able to to be there this past weekend or not. On Saturday for Pastor Wes's memorial, his funeral. It, It was amazing. Not because Wes was exalted and magnified, but because it was, it was phenomenal just to hear person after person after person talk about Christ and God and what God had done through him and in him. And you walk away from that. And yes, you, you feel the sorrow and the hurt and the pain, but you walk away from that. And I, I'll tell you guys, I was fired up. I was charged up to, to now go out and, and follow Wes's example. Imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? That, that's what the apostle Paul said. That should be our legacy. We should leave behind a legacy that the world looks at us and says, okay, I want to follow after what he did because he was following so hard after Christ. That's what we heard about Pastor Wes. We see that with David here. 
I want to be that type of leader. I want to be a leader that leads and says, okay, everything, all the glory back to God. It's not about me, it's about him. I'm going to leave a God-exalting legacy. Again, it, it is painful when we lose a friend like Pastor Wes, but it's a gracious reminder from God that we cannot grow comfortable here. That there's work to be done. It's something that I stress a lot to students. I used to when I was a high school pastor and even now as a college pastor, I still try to drive it home to them because they're in a life stage where they feel like they have the rest of their life in front of them and they're invincible. They're not. It's a reality that all of us are very well acquainted with right now. But it's not just college students that can have the mindset that I'm invincible. We can fall into that same trap. And what that can do to us is that can take us from a position of saying, okay, God, what do you have for me today? How can I obey you today? How can I be fighting against that persistent enemy? How can I make sure that I'm leaving a godly legacy? It can take that drive and ambition and motivation that we have and we can think, okay, I'll get there tomorrow. And it sounds cliche and trite, but guys, it's, it's not because I've seen it in front of my very eyes within the last week and a half. You don't have tomorrow promised. You just don't. You guys know his background. Pastor West was a, a Marine. He was a SWAT officer. I'd venture to say that as far as physical fitness, he could go toe-to-toe with anyone else in this room. Didn't matter. Psalm 139, he fulfilled every day that God had written for him in his book. And God called him home. We don't know when that day is. So it's a sobering note to end on, but man, let me just challenge us. The battle cry of complacency is I'll get to it tomorrow. Get to it today. Let's pray. God, we thank you for a text like this. We thank you for an example like the one that we have in King David. Lord, we thank you for the way that you give us such a tangible example of using uh, Lord, the, the efforts of, of a human, but yet it's, it's you empowering David to go out and drive out these enemies. And we're mindful of a passage like Philippians 2, 12 and 13, that we need to work out our salvation, that there's a, a responsibility that we have to get after it as far as practically and tangibly uh, obeying you. That being a Christian is not a passive endeavor, that we shouldn't sit back and say, well, I'll, I'll get to zeal tomorrow because God, it's, it's true. We may not have tomorrow. We may not have tomorrow because you may come back for your church before then. God, what a terrifying thing it is to think about finding ourselves like we read in 1 John, shrinking in shame at your coming. We don't want to be doing that. God, help us to be men who are constantly battling against complacency, mortifying sin, putting to death those persistent enemies daily. God, help us to be men who live in a way that when our funeral is here, that people don't look at, at us and say, man, what a, a great man he was, but to say, wow, what a, what a great God he served and how amazing was the way that God used him. That's what we want, Lord. By your grace, it's, it's possible. So we pray that you would give us 
just a great desire towards that end. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.